Hi, Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here, and I am reading the scripture passage for tonight, which is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, 1 through 13a, the first sentence of 13. Uh, forewarning, this is a very heavy passage uh, with descriptions of sexual assault. Um, but with that, uh, again, it's 2 Samuel chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 13a. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jo Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took a excuse me, took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his, in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me, from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? This is God's word. So we're nearing the end of the life of David in First and Second Samuel, and uh, this passage is one of the most chilling passages in the whole Bible, and certainly it's the most appalling passage uh, that we've looked at since we started as a church. And uh, I'm sure for some of you, just given um, the statistics, this is a story that's, I'm sure, more painful and personal than you would ever wish. Um, and so what we have to ask is, you know, why is this story in the Bible? Why does God include this story in the Bible, and why are, why are we covering it? And so there's a Bible teacher, Jen Wilk, and I've mentioned her before, and so she did a teaching series through 2 Samuel, and uh, when she got to this passage, what she mentioned, and she, she's in her 50s now, and, and she grew up in the church, and she said, you know, I've, I've grown up in the church, and not once have I heard this passage preached on. Um, and she said, you know, when we're going through a, a book of the Bible and we skip an episode like this, uh, what we do is we communicate to women and men who have been abused. What we say to them by skipping a passage like this is we say, you don't deserve to be heard. Um, your shame is merited. Uh, and we shouldn't talk about these things. But the reason why God has this in the Bible is because what God is communicating to Tamar and to people who have stories like Tamar is, I love you. Uh, you deserve a hearing. You deserve justice. Uh, I treasure you, and I've done something about it. 
And so that's why we're looking at the story is because God cares uh, deeply about people who have been abused. And so just a couple expectations as we, as we go through this passage. So first, know this story uh, isn't ultimately about assault. Um, so one of the bigger themes in this passage is it, it's meant to show us the seriousness of sin because this started with David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. So what we're supposed to see is how sin compounds and continues to roll like a giant snowball and it wrecks havoc, not just in a nation, but in a family. And so we need to long for redemption. Like, where are we going to find redemption? Take sin seriously. That's number one. And number two, uh, I'm going to be sticking to this passage as best as I can. And um, there's a lot of things I'm not going to say. And so given that, I'm sure this will raise questions uh, for some of you. And so just know I'm available for any of you who want to talk privately. Uh, We're also connected to some really good counselors, uh, Doxology is. And so reach out to me if you would like to speak or get connected to a counselor. And so here is my aim as your pastor, and it's the same aim that I've had since the first day I ever preached to you all. So there's this passage in John chapter 12 where some Greeks approach Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and what they say to Philip is they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And every time I walk up here, uh, my prayer is to attempt nothing more than to show you Jesus and to do nothing less than to show you Jesus. (laughs) And that's no less true for a day like today. Um, And so I'll do my best to do that. And God doesn't give pat answers, so I'm not going to give you pat answers. But what we will have is a, by God's grace, a clear path to Jesus Christ, who is the only place where you can find hope and healing. All right, so here's how we'll walk through the passage. First, we'll look at David's sin, because this is what started all this. Then we'll look at Amnon's sin with Tamar. And then number three, we'll look at what is the question that this passage is begging us to ask and have answered. Okay, so number one, David's sin. Number two, Amnon's sin. And number three, uh, what's the question that this passage is asking of us and how do we resolve it? All right, so first, number one, David's sin. So uh, this Text starts off, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So um, what's going on here? So David had multiple wives. This wasn't uh, approved of by God. This was something David was doing against the will of God. David had multiple wives. Through one wife, he had a son named Absalom who had a, who, and a daughter, Tamar. And then through another woman, he had uh, Amnon. And so Tamar is Amnon's half-sister. Okay? And Absalom and Amnon are half-brothers. So it says Amnon loved Tamar. So we know based on this passage, uh, this isn't the kind of love through which God loves us. Uh, this is lust. And then verse 2, uh, Amnon, it, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Uh, I really wish it meant something different than what it implies, uh, but it means what it sounds like. And so what we're supposed to see here is already in Amnon, we're seeing ripple effects of David because this is the exact same thing. This is even worse because it's incest, but it's the same thing essentially that what happened with David. David saw a woman Bathsheba. He he objectified her, wanted to take her. Now his son Amnon sees a woman. He objectifies her, wants to take her. 
So then, number t- um, so then, then what we see is Amnon goes to his friend Jonadab, and Jonadab is described as a crafty man. So the serpent in Genesis three is described as crafty. So that gives you an idea of the kind of shrewdness, uh, this, the ends this guy tries to achieve. And so, Jonadab says, "Okay, Amnon, you know, you're in love with your sister Tamar. Why don't you just pretend to be sick? Ask Tamar to come help you out, and then you all can be in the same room together." And um, so that's what he does. So Amnon lays down, and David comes into his room first. And it says, when the king came to see him, in verse 6, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from your hand. And then David sent him to Tamar, saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And so when David just grants this request by Amnon, what does this tell you about how he parents his kids? Uh, he's extremely indulgent. He just gives them whatever they ask for. And in the book of Kings, we're told David's so afraid to offend his sons, he never even really disciplines them. Okay, so, um, so David sends Tamar to Amnon, and then when Tamar shows up, uh, she's making food for Amnon, and then Amnon uh, grabs her. He says, come lie with me, sister. Uh, I'm going to keep the details very high level here. And she says, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. So Tamar's saying clearly no, and then she says, for such a thing is not done in Israel. So what she's saying, she knows the law. And the Mosaic law had severe punishment for what Amnon is doing. And so she's appealing to the law. And she says, such a thing is not done in Israel. Remember, God rescued us out of Egypt. And then he gave us the law, which is for our joy and our flourishing. Now, what's ironic about Tamar saying such a thing is not done in Israel? The king had just done this very thing. Okay, so by pleading, this, such a thing is not done in Israel. The person who's supposed to be a model of the law has just violated this. And so her appeal essentially is void because of what King David has done. And so the, the first thing that we see here is, so Nathan told David, if you remember in 2 Samuel 12, okay, David, God has forgiven you, but your sin still has real consequences. And because of what you've done, uh, there's going to be an avalanche of calamity in your household. And so an application here for us is um, <laughs> behavior is more easily caught than taught. Behavior is more easily caught than taught. Because what's scary here is did, did David teach his kids, you know, sex outside of marriage is wrong? Did David teach his kids murder is wrong? Based on what we know off of David's life, he did. But what's the problem? Is he, he acted differently. And so then what we see with David is it's like two uh, streams out of the same river. Amnon will do with Tamar what David with, did with Bathsheba, and then Absalom is going to murder Amnon just like David murdered Uriah. And so just as you think about your life, um, we will look at uh, the ultimate question this text begs of us, but before we go pointing the finger, well, we, we have to look at ourselves first and just look at you know what behaviors do we have in our lives, even if we think they're small, that are serving as a model to other people. And so um, to put a, hopefully a little bit of a, a positive message on this, like the opposite of the negative, what David showed is one of the best ways that you guys and I can bless other people in our lives is not through what we say, but through how we live and through what we do. I mean, the, the ways I've changed the most to look more like Jesus haven't been through the things people have said to me, but it's through watching the lives of family members, mentors, and friends who've showed me what it means to live like Jesus. So just think about, like, if, if someone's watching your life and there are people watching your life, do they see, for example, that following Jesus is more about sacrifice than about comfort? 
Um, when people, if people were to look at your bank statement and see how much money you give to ministry and to people who need it, would they learn a lot about generosity? If people were to look at your dinner table and and see you having people over who don't know Jesus, having your neighbors over, having people who aren't like you over or not, would they learn about Christ-centered hospitality? As people listen to your speech, would they see that following Jesus, by following Jesus, you have speech that builds up, you know, rather than corrupts, like Ephesians 4.29 says. And I'll be honest, you know, with you guys, in love, some of you don't have speech that models Christ very well. Speech matters. So as people hear the way you talk and the word choices you use and how you talk about other people, do they have a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus? Because behavior is more easily caught than taught. So that's, that's one application we see just as a result of it was David's life, ultimately, that his sons were looking at and following when it led to this disaster. Okay, so that's David's sin. Next, we'll look at uh, Amnon's sin. And so, verse 13, uh, Tamar says, As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Here, she's not, um, she's not saying David's actually going to approve of this, but she's probably just trying to you know, bide for time. But he would not listen to her in being stronger than she, uh, not just physically, but socially. He's the king's son. Uh, he violated her and lay with her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And so one of the, the central plea here of Tamar is don't do this outrageous thing, she says in verse 12, and then again in verse 13, you're going to be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. So that word outrageous literally means godless. You're going to be one of the godless fools in Israel. So what's Tamar saying? She's speaking a principle that we should know to be true, and that's it's the commandments that Jesus ties together in his ministry, that your love or not of other people is directly tied to your love for God. So if you are bitter toward other people, that speaks of a bitterness you have toward God. If you are indifferent toward other people, that speaks of an indifference you have toward God. If you hate other people, that speaks of a hatred you have toward God. That's why Jesus says you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's one thing she's getting at. And then another thing she's getting at is um, the same thing that uh, Rachel Den Hollander was getting at. If you all saw the testimony she gave, uh, so Rachel Den Hollander, you know, she's one of the Olympians who spoke to the judge when Larry Nassar was being convicted, the uh, doctor of the Olympic team, among others, who had uh, assaulted girls in his care. And what Rachel Den Hollander said to the judges, she said, I appeal to you to pass a verdict that shows how much these little girls are worth, is what she says. She asked, like, you know, how much is a little girl worth? That was the title of her book that she wrote. And Rachel was a Christian. And what she's getting at is it's precisely because men and women are made in God's image and are treasured by God, which is why they matter so much. And so abuse of any kind, you know, to any human being, is to just treat them as if there's no connection between that person and God at all. And so that's Tamar's plea to Amnon. He doesn't listen. And then in uh, verse, verse 17, uh, Amnon, he calls the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. 
And so what he's doing here, it's a the tragically normal case of blaming the victim by bolting the door. It makes it seem like you know, she was coming after him. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. So visible forms of lament and despair. And then verse 20 her brother Absalom sees her and says, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. In other words, don't say anything. So Absalom, I mean, he's furious. He, he murders Amnon in the second half of this passage. But when he says, hold your peace, my sister, that impulse that Absalom has is the same impulse that leads us to not talk about this in the church. Okay, let's talk about other atrocities, but let's not talk about this and give people a voice who have stories like Tamar. Yeah, he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David, verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Okay, good. So King David gets very angry, and then what did King David do next? Nothing. King David does nothing. And so what God is communicating through the way this is narrated is the tragic consequences of David's passivity and his inaction. Because what did Tamar need? She needed compassion She needed somebody to come alongside her and hold her, a shoulder she could cry on. She needed somebody to tell her this was not your fault. She needed somebody to say, you're loved, God treasures you, I'll protect you. And she needed justice. The Mosaic Law had all kinds of provisions to punish people like Amnon. And this would have been so easy for David to do, because he was the king. He just snap of his fingers and immediate justice would happen for Tamar. But he did nothing. And then the passage ends and it moves on. To then Absalom, you know, murdering Amnon and just in cold-blooded vindictiveness. And so here's the question that God is asking us to, to beg of him as we read this passage is, where does redemption happen? Like, where's the redemption as we read this? Because it's nowhere. And so let's ask, okay, where was God in this passage? And God was nowhere in this passage, and that's the point. Like, there's no mention of God anywhere in this text, because this is what happens when people act without regard to God. And this is what happens if God just doesn't actually intervene to stop the spread of sin in the world. But Samuel does give us an answer with where redemption is found, and it's twofold. Okay, and so first is we need to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where God makes a promise to David. And in God's promise to David, he says, David, in your line there's going to be a son of David who establishes his throne forever and will reign with righteousness and justice. Okay, and so here in this passage, what we see is we see David himself, who's a failure. We see Amnon, who's unspeakably evil. And then we see, Am, uh, we see Absalom, who's just a hair better. 
And so the son of David we're looking for is Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, one of the first things he does in Luke chapter 4 is he walks into the synagogue and he reads Isaiah 61 and he says, this passage has been fulfilled today in your hearing, meaning I'm the person Isaiah is talking about. And so what does Isaiah 61 says? It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And also to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. They said these are the two things Tamar needed. Compassion, somebody to bind up the brokenhearted. And justice, somebody to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. So what, David is, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the true son of David who's come to bring you compassion and to bring you justice. And so... Um, the justice of Jesus, so we actually, this came up a little bit in the question group on Monday, but Jesus is the judge of all humanity. Um, in John 5, he says uh, the, the father's not going to be the one to judge, but he's given all judgment to the son. And there are lots of places in the book of Matthew, especially, where Jesus says some very stark things, such as, you know, anyone who causes any of these little ones to sin, it'd be better if a millstone was hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. So Jesus is the judge, and here's the point. When it comes to Jesus Christ being the judge is, so we often talk about the gentleness of Jesus. We often talk about the mercy of Jesus, and we should. But we also need to know, and especially those who have had abuse committed against them, while Jesus is a lamb to his children, Jesus is a lion toward anyone who harms his children. Jesus has a righteous white-hot anger toward anything that plagues his kids. Whether that's your own sin or whether that's somebody who's abused you. And so at the end of all things, Jesus Christ will judge with a perfect, razor-sharp justice. All sinners. And will be perfectly just And it will either fall on him on the cross, or for those who don't repent, they will receive eternal condemnation in hell. Jesus makes that very clear. So he gives justice to the hurting, and he, oh my gosh, does Jesus give compassion to? Like, read any of the gospel accounts. Anytime he sees the broken, anytime he sees the hurting, anytime he sees the abused, his, his deepest impulse is to move right toward him. And it's the same thing for you. So know that, like, especially if you have a story that's at all similar to Tamar, with Jesus Christ, you have a friend who will always receive rather than refuse your presence. And his embrace of you doesn't depend on how faithful or how fickle you've been. His embrace of you doesn't depend on what has happened to you or what has not happened to you. His embrace of you is dependent on his heart, which is perfect. And more than that, you know Tamar's question, where could I carry my shame? If Jesus doesn't exist, if Jesus didn't do what he did, the answer to Tamar's question, where could I carry my shame? There's no answer. Even the best, human, the best human legal systems 
can't carry your shame for you if something has happened to you similar to what happened to Tamar. This is something you only get with Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? His answer to that question, where can I carry my shame, is you don't carry it. Because I carry it for you. You know, the thing about the crucifixion of Jesus was it wasn't even ultimately about his pain. The entire account of Christ's crucifixion and the way it was gone about was shame. The laughing, the jeering, the stripping of him, making him naked, ripping his skin off, and then making him carry his own cross. It was more about making him into a non-person than about inflicting physical pain upon him. And then he goes to the cross where he's condemned, not just killed, but condemned for your sin and for my sin. So that when you trust in him, all of your shame is put on him. And what Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 61, which Jesus said was fulfilled in him. You know what Isaiah 61 also says? Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. And you will be given a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Because Jesus doesn't just remove the wrongs you've committed, but he also removes the wrongs that have happened to you. And he puts them on himself. And this is something you only get in Jesus. And so for, for, those of us who, for those of us whose story is not like Tamar, what we're called to do as brothers and sisters of the true son of David is to do as much as we can for Tamar what everybody in the story failed to do. To say, I want to hear your story. To say, it's not your fault. To let them cry on our shoulders. And to bring their story to those who can bring justice for them, if at all possible. To be people where this is something that we can talk about and then come alongside those who are hurting. Unlike so many churches in the past who have just kept these types of things tragically silent. And for those of you who, who have been abused in any way, shape, or form, I told you I'm not going to try to give you a pat answer <laughs> uh, because God doesn't do this. But here's something that 2 Samuel makes very clear. So the way 2 Samuel is structured is you have this story in the middle, which is horrific. And on the bookends of this story is you have the story of Mephibosheth. And I don't know if you all remember the story of Mephibosheth. We looked at the first bookend a few weeks ago. And to Mephibosheth, he was a son of Jonathan. And he was shamed in society uh, because he was a cripple. He lived on the margins. And what King David did in one of his best moments is he restored Mephibosheth's name and honor. He gave him land. And he brought him to the king's table. Okay, so that's the first bracket. Then we have this incident. And then on the other side, in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 19, the next time we see Mephibosheth, what happens is David returns um, to Jerusalem. He was in exile. And there's this incident where Mephibosheth had his land taken from him. And King David comes back and he says, you know, Mephibosheth, I'll give you your land back. And Mephibosheth says, no, I don't care about it. I just want to be in your presence. And what Mephibosheth is saying is the only thing that matters to me is that I'm in the presence of the king. And that's that's what 2 Samuel is communicating, is where redemption happens 
it's not just in merely ridding the world of evil. It's not even in making your memories go away or making your anger go away or making the bitterness that you feel go away. Where redemption happens is not removing the negative, but it's being in the positive presence of the king. Because in Jesus, you have a king who doesn't get angry and then do nothing, but a king who gets angry more than anyone and then comes alongside you and fights on your behalf. In King Jesus, you have a friend who doesn't ignore you, but he comes alongside you and he holds you. And in King Jesus, you have a Savior who says in John chapter 14, I'm preparing a home for you. And the marvelous thing about that is, so it's, it's the home where the worst abuses often happen. And so when Jesus Christ says, I'm preparing a home for you, what he's saying is, I'm, I am building a home for you where I'm making you a home where you don't have to hide again. I'm making you a home where you don't have to be scared. I'm making you a home where there is no pain, where there is no fear, and where there is no darkness or shouting. But I'm making you a home where there's nothing but warmth and light and beauty because I'm there. And so for those of you who hurt the most, like where just the call of 2 Samuel and God speaking through it is to not look for redemption and nursing feelings of revenge or hatred or bitterness, although those are natural and understandable feelings. But where redemption is found is being in the positive presence of the king because it's only in the presence of the king where everything will be okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus and I pray that you will give comfort through him in the only way that you can do. Um, I just ask for you to minister to us today uh, through this passage and as we approach you at the table and continue to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.